Hello and welcome to Noise Creators episode 12. I'm here this week with Fremont, California's own Sam Pura. Sam and I have been buds for quite a while from the internet. We've talked a bunch over internet and text, but this was the first time we got to really sit down and have like a long talk. And I think this talk is like really cool because Sam and I are in the same place on a lot of things and getting to discuss that stuff and really talk about what we're seeing that's going on in music today and where the producer-musician relationship can be improved, I think really is a fun and enlightening talk. If you don't know Sam, you should really get to know him. He has a heavy presence on the internet, is always doing cool things, whether it's building robots that move microphones onto his The Waiting Room, where he has bands perform live and you get to see what their songs really sound like with a nice mix in a studio environment, but they're playing live and there's no overdubs and it's really cool. Um, You probably know him, though, for his production work with The Story So Far, State Champs, Basement, and tons and tons more. Um, I particularly have been enjoying a record from a band called 100th that he worked with this year. Uh, Sam is a rad dude, and his energy just uh, exudes right out of him, as you will hear in this podcast. And I think this is a pretty kick-ass episode, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. I am excited to be joined by my bud who I've texted a bunch but never gotten to really talk to, and um, I know is a great talker, so I know this episode is going to be fucking awesome. I'm here with Sam Pura. Sam, what's your chain for recording your voice today? So today, I'm using an SM7, uh, and I'm going into an undertone audio uh, MPEQ, which is a mic. That's the Eric Valentine piece, right? That's it's the Eric Valentine piece. Nice. And uh, then I'm going into a uh, Hairball Audio FET 500 for a little bit of compression. Nice. Yeah. So tell me about your background in music and, you know, what got you into wanting to do this with your life? I guess, I mean, we all started playing in bands, I guess. Uh, most of us did. So I, I, I played guitar originally, and I was definitely the guy who, like, created the jam session. Like, when I went to high school, I was like, all right, you're the drummer. 
you're going to be the bass player. Uh, I was really into that band, uh, ne- or what were they called, Incubus. Mm-hmm. And I just so I, uh, yeah, so I was like, we're going to have a DJ too. We're going to have a turntablist guy, like Limp Bizkit and stuff. <laughs> it was that era. So, nice. Uh, yeah, so that was that was my first band. How did, and, how, uh, how did the firing of him go? <laughs> uh, yeah, he uh, he left himself when he realized that he was kind of uh, wasn't really doing much. So. <laughs> worked it worked itself out. I was like thinking about that the other day. How how random that entire life was when I was in high school how much of a how much of a nerd I was and how much I would have hated myself if I met me today you know many people argue that's a good thing I, I yeah, have the same thing. I always t- say that uh, my 19 year old self saw me today it would kick the shit out of me yeah yeah absolutely so uh it's I don't really think of that too often but when I did the other day I was like man that's kind of embarrassing um <laughs> but yeah so I was I was definitely always like the facilitator of uh um of all things like with my band so I was, I, it was kind of very early on, like, obvious that I was the guy who was going to write the songs and was the guy who was like, we're all jamming to my house. And so then I was like looking into where we're going to record and stuff. I was, I was into the whole thing of making my band awesome, you know? So, uh, when it came down to like, when we did our first little EP thing, uh, I think, uh, I can't believe how prepared we were at the time, like compared to advanced day too, which we'll get to at some point. But I mean, like mm-hmm. I, I made us practice to a click, like, Having, I bought everyone headphones and then like a whole headphone system so we could jam live to a click and everyone got it down. And like when we got in there, I had everything uh, perfect. I was like, this guitar part's going to be center. This guitar part's going to be left. This guitar part's going to be right. Like I was very big into the whole idea and concept of our songs and how our album would sound. And so that experience of recording was very like eye-opening for me that this is what I was meant to be doing. Like, because hmm. uh, our engineer had vibed really well with me. Everything was really fun. And it was like, okay, man, I'm going to, I'm going to do this more often. So that was the big setting point for me where I was like, I'm, I'm going to go and start, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to get a Pro Tools system. I'm going to start recording bands. That, that, that's very different than a lot of people. Like, I feel like myself and almost everybody we talked to on this podcast, their, their thing is usually like, I was an idiot. I had no clue what I would do, was doing, and then I got into it. So I think that that's a, and it also explains you. You seem to be very good at getting a lot of things done. So Absolutely. I think that that's a, that that says a lot that that was a natural thing for you. For sure, I was always the guy that would like tinker with uh, my guitar tone and pedals. I was like obsessed with sound at all times as well too. And like I'd be the guy that would tune my drummer's drum set and get on to that and stuff. So it was it it was obvious that I was naturally I, I would naturally gravitate towards producing bands you know what i mean and i didn't really realize it at the time but that's essentially what i was doing with my band i was and and that's what i do with bands currently i do the exact same thing that i did when i was in my band except i'm just not in their band you know Mm -hmm. cool so where does it go from there so uh from there i was like i was at a private high school it's like this college prep school so my parents wanted me to go to some four-year college my sister graduated with honors and like went to awesome business school at at warden Pennsylvania, and philadelphia yeah so that's like the one yeah so she like I was, I got uh, kicked out of my school for having a low GPA. She was like basically the third highest in her class. So polar opposites. So it was kind of, uh, my parents, it took them a little while to kind of get on board with the fact that uh, they could kind of trust me. They they thought I was going to be this hopeless, like uh, ADHD kid that was just going to be living on the street or something like that and was going to get into bad things. But um, so I found uh, the school that I went to, which is called Expression, which was like our local uh, diploma mill at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they were literally what they are. But uh, so they, I went to that school and like did a little tour there and was like, all right, I definitely want to record bands, you know, for my life. This is what I want to do. So I like, got my parents on board and they were like, all right, well, why don't we just go go to that college? Who cares about like you're finishing, you know, your your super prestigious private school that's college prep private school. So. I, I jumped out of that school, 
finished one year of a senior like in, as a basically a private rejection school <laughs> for my senior year and then just went straight into uh, expression when I was 18 and started recording my band in my bedroom and never stopped. Nice. So what drew you like when was the transition clear that you're going from band dude to producer I, at that point like it was right when high school ended so my band broke up you know everyone's kind of going different ways some dudes are going to college here everyone's going to so it was, it was very obvious that like okay now i gotta find a new band to be in i want to write all brand new songs that whole process was like exhausting and i also like i was really burnt out on kind of divorcing my five friends, you know what I mean? Like, because mm. I was I was that guy in my band who was so if if you know if we weren't going to be in a band together, then we're not friends anymore. You know, like mm-hmm. I was very dramatic about things like that. So uh, I was just tired of having conflict like that. So it, it I would rather play with bands at the time. So I would I would play with a couple hardcore bands as guitar. I played with a band called Heavy Heavy Lolo and mm-hmm. um, played with a band like called Sora. Like did some touring as playing guitar, and then also. Did a bunch of touring, being a guitar tech for a couple other bands, like in a tour bus and stuff. So I got to, I got to actually go in the van and have like that life and really see it for what it was. And it was very obvious that I want I was best um, spending my time back home working on records than being on the road. Nice. And so you have your own studio. Yep. Tell us about that. So the current studio is the seventh. Uh, studio I've been in. Wow, you're like, yeah, right. You and I are like right there. I like it's so funny. Like everybody we interview, even people have been doing this for a long time. It's like it doesn't get that high, but wow, I can't believe you're that that high as well. Yeah, I mean, I I um I'm in the Bay Area, so it's I mean everywhere's expensive, but it's really expensive out here, obviously. So I was um you know I started recording in my my bedroom at my mom's house uh, when I was 18, and so very quickly that got pretty annoying because she didn't want 10 dudes hanging out, you know and. It was just, so I was just like, all right, I need to get out of here. So I, I suddenly stay like uh, basically a space in Oakland that was a live work environment, and it was in a musicians only uh, apartment complex. So there was ten units, and everyone that lived there was like doing music and jamming there. That was actually probably like one of the most eye opening like times of my life mm-hmm. um, being in that place. I was there for two years. Um, so what was eye opening about it? Well, that was like I mean that was right when I became like nineteen years old. Uh, I was living on my own like for a little bit, but that was like the first time that it was just like, I'm living on my own, I'm recording here, I'm fully immersed in this all day long. And um, everyone else that kind of had their spots, they were all just in bands and jammed. I was the only guy who was like making mine uh, a studio, you know what I mean? It was going to actually record other bands as opposed to just having this place for my band to jam. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really cool to see like, one, people were impressed by what I was doing and, and the fact that I was so young. And two, like uh, they were all you know, older musicians like thirties and, and they all had, they all had experience of living and doing this for a while. And they, they liked my drive and they were like, man, you, you got, you got the right thing going on here. You just got to keep it up, you know? So that was a very um, supportive time, that community of, of having, of living with, you know, all these other musicians was a very, like, it was like living in a, in a musician's dorm basically for like college. Cause I was going to uh, expression at the same time. So it was the, it was just such an inspirational time. Hmm. Um, so yeah, anyways, Oakland is sketch as fuck. Yes. Bands, cars were getting broken into all the time. It all came to a head when, uh, the cops shot and killed this guy who was handcuffed on New Year's Eve in front of our place. And it was, it, they, that place became basically like, there was just hundreds of people that were, you know, have morning, you know, uh, morning, day and night, just doing vigils. And it was like, 
oh, here's my van, driving from uh, New Mexico with their van and trailer, and they're going to park it right here and unload thousands of dollars of gear in front of all of these people who are mourning their, like, sketch friend. Like, it was just, the environment was no longer cool. It was very unsafe. It was like, all right, it's time to get out of here. I, I started subleasing a, uh, I, like, went to a band's practice space in Fremont for a little bit, which is, like, I'm in Fremont right down the street from there. Mm-hmm. That was cool because, one, the area was really safe. It was easy to park, and there was just food everywhere out here. So I was like, all right, this is, this is cheap. I like this, but I want to be cool, right? So uh, I went to San Francisco for a while, and I subleased uh, Third Eye Blind's old studio space. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, I, know, I know that place, yeah. Yeah, it was called, like, Morning Glory or something <laughs> like that at the time. But that was a fucking fantastic room. Um, very uh, nicely done. This guy, Chris Polonis, was the dude who uh, mm-hmm. had built out the studio there. So really nice room, really great place. I was only there for like three months because it was so fucking expensive. And it was also just so inconvenient for parking, so inconvenient for food, so inconvenient to get in and out of there. Party tickets daily, like bands just could not park a van anywhere. It was it was a nightmare. So um, left that place, started a, a, a subleasing another studio in Fremont that like I was sharing with a guy. He wasn't really doing too much work. It was very obvious that I was pulling in all the cash. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to build my own place like this down the street. So that's where I currently am. So what, so what year is this? So that was, I, I want to say that's six years ago now. Mm-hmm. Maybe like uh, 2007 or something. I, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to look at some pictures to verify. It's all been a blur, man. I've just yeah, been doing this. Well, it's, it's all been a blur. You know? um, but <laughs> I crossed 10 years this month in my studio, and I was like, oh, oh my, my God. Like, I can't even believe this. It, it scared the same me. space. The same space for 10 years, you mean? Yeah, same building. Uh, that's we moved awesome. spaces. That's awesome, man. Yeah, so, um, you know, I built, I basically found the place I'm currently in. Uh, it was a 1,200 square feet warehouse, had absolutely fucking nothing in it. Um, so we built everything, built all the walls. Um, it was a pretty expensive process. You know, I had to hit on my mom and dad's door and be like, yo, can I get a cosign on a loan here? So um, <laughs> wow. that was that was an awesome uh, experience, basically, you know, design the place I'm currently in. It still sounds fantastic. Uh, so, so, so this is also another modern miracle. Most studios can never get a loan. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I, I've I've had extremely supportive parents. My mom has like been the absolute shit uh, my entire life, and so that's been one of the biggest uh, supporting aspects of it. Is like as I was going to college and stuff, and, and recording bands, like and living in, in what was my first uh, studio there in Oakland. I was I was in college for like three years, so my parents were paying my rent and were paying for my college. Like I I had it all hooked up. So I and I knew that I was I had it all hooked up. So I was. I was utilizing every day to put in as much experience as possible and learn, 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 you know? So eventually when it's like, I have to actually start affording everything myself. I'm like, all right, man, well now we, I can, I can do this. You know, I have enough traction where this can afford itself and I don't need to rely on my mom to pay my rent or anything at this point, you know? No, so that was a, like, it's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, mean, I was that's, lucky that way too. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, and tons of people don't have that opportunity, you know? And mm-hmm. so that's, that's one of the, biggest aspects of how I got my start is like, because from, you know, 18 to 21, I, I had no expenses and I was able to put absolutely everything, uh, I had into just building a studio and buying gear with the records I would make, you know? Yeah. That is a very cool thing to have. Um, yeah. so tell me about what makes your studio unique. The thing that makes us most unique is one, we, we have accommodations here so that, you know, bands can crash and that, that makes it awesome. So that it's real cheap for a band to just be like, all right, all you gotta focus on is how much uh, money you have to spend on the, the day rate here. And if we can get you in for enough days, then you can just crash on these beds and everyone's happy and we're fully immersed in working on this record 10 to 12 hours a day, you know? So that's, that's a great aspect of it. It also can become a burnout sometimes too, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, that's, that's probably one of the coolest aspects. 
And then I would say, uh, egotistically, myself, I'm probably one of the coolest aspects of my studio. <laughs> and the reason, that's the reason why people come to work yes. with us. See what I mean? Not to toot my own horn, but toot toot, you know? I think years ago, people used to focus on like, oh, I need to go to that studio. And now people get that. It's like, no, I need to go to that guy. Cause yeah, exactly. You know, there's a million records made by clowns on SSLs that sound worse than a kid working on a Digio 2 in his basement. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. And I, and, and to support that too, I think, that was probably one of my big eye-opening experiences where I was, I had the awesome opportunity of being able to have a 002 in my bedroom at my house where I was recording pre-pros for like my band while I was going to expression using their SSL and being like, why do my tones at home sound better than this pro studio? Mm -hmm. This doesn't make sense, you know? And, and so very quickly I was able to understand it's not really about the gear. It's not really about any, like, it's about having a real clean, pure signal flow and just vibing it out. You know what I mean? That was a very important lesson on that aspect. It's not, it's not the gear, it's the ear, you know? Yeah, totally. What's the coolest piece of gear your studio has? I, I would have said the robot, but now there's uh, someone who already does that now. Oh, um, yeah. I saw, so yeah. somebody made the real, ro like, yeah, a yeah. real commercial hey. version of it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hats off to them. Hey, tell them about the robot. So the robot, I mean, it's, 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 it's not like this concept I invented or anything. You know, it's just no. anyone who's ever worked with guitar would has the idea of saying, hey, I need it to go a little left, a little right, maybe a little off axis, and everything would be perfect. I'm just going to run out to the room and just move that real quick, you know? And so uh, then you you have the genius idea where you go, well, what if I just had a robot that could do that? Oh, that'd be so sick. So eventually, uh, I saw that that dude from Romstein had one, mm. and uh, um, then Eric Valentine had one. I was just like, fuck, dude, I got to make one. So I, I begged, like, every band that would, come, that would come through, I'm just like, hey, man, is anyone here a robotics nerd? Anyone? And eventually, one of my friends was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll build this for you. So, like, a year of me annoying the fucking shit out of him and buying some parts, he, he built me a robot that looks like an erector set, essentially, but it goes left, right, forward, and back. And mm -hmm. so I can move my mic. And, I, and, and it comes to a really cool arcade joystick. So it looks like I'm playing a video game as I'm doing it. <laughs> nice. I mean, and then also, like, you know what? I built that. Everyone's like, you should, you should make this, you know, a product. It's like, well, one, um, I spend 100% of my time or 110% of my time making records. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any time to be able to develop this idea. And also, it's really no market. You know, there's going to be 100 yep. dudes that buy that and they're never going to need to buy it again. It's not a light bulb, you know. Yeah. It's not burn out. You know, I had the same thing with, um, I made that Bent 57 and then I put instructions on how to do it on my blog. Oh, and awesome. then these guys email me like, hey, we took your idea. We're manufacturing. If you want to buy any, I'm like, how about you fuck off? That's awesome. That's the, because uh, you did it with PVC pipe, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. So like, I made even, a, even smaller than that on my blog. I showed how to just do it even with duct tape in case you didn't even want to do that. That's awesome. But yeah, I had that probably for even five years before I had that, uh, like the, put that blog up and then it's like, oh Christ. But it was also like, I don't want to fucking sell 57s wouldn't like bend them for my life. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's not why I got into uh, recording bands was to, <laughs> it wasn't to be a robotics manufacturer. Nice. So you talked about how you play guitar. Do you play any other instruments? So, I mean, I, I grew up just playing guitar in my band as I started recording. I mean, like the first thing I, I got obsessed with was drum tones. So, um, I mean, I can, I can hit a kit, no problem. Mm -hmm. Definitely not a drummer per se, but I can speak drums and I can definitely ride drummers and be like, no, man, it's two hands on the crash on the downbeat and then go to this crash. You know, I can, mm -hmm. I'll, t I'll point out things that they would have never thought about. So I, uh, I, I can speak drums and I, I really respect drums, uh, extremely well. Uh, more of a recent thing, I guess, is that I, after working with like the story so far, um, Kellen, he's probably like 
one of the coolest bass players. He's just mm-hmm. a phenomenal bass player. Um, it was one of the first times where I was able, he was a conduit of my uh, vision for Final Tone. You know what I mean? I was like, mm-hmm. I can get this sound with this guy right now because he's perfect. When I've you know, tried to replicate that with other people and try to get an amazing bass performance like that, they couldn't do it, so I was like, give it to me, and I started playing lots more session bass. So hmm. um, I've, I've been doing lots of session bass this year, which has been awesome, too. So I definitely uh, play a lot of bass. I play a lot of guitar. A lot of guitar on records, too. I'll, I'll, I'll jam in and, and contribute in any way, shape, or form, you know? And then um, besides that, you know, I'm probably the worst uh, singer of all time uh, tonally, <laughs> but I can hit notes and, and can, uh, can sing the parts that people are supposed to sing to them so that they can replicate me as long as right. I have a beautiful voice. Right there with you. So you kind of got into what I wanted to talk to you about next. Like, so on the podcast, we like to say like, there's two sides of the spectrum of like, yep. there's Steve Albini who like, he's not going to get past any comments past like, this take was good. He's just going to get great tones. And then there's John Feldman, who's going to totally rewrite your song for you. Absolutely. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum? When I first started, I, I wanted to be like a really versatile guy, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I want to be able to record a hardcore band, metal band, jazz band. I want to be able to do all those kind of styles. So I really, I think one of the biggest things that I, I used to, I used to really respect bands' sounds when they came in and, and would really like, leave it up to them to kind of drive and guide their sound. Mm-hmm. As I've you know, grown, grown and developed, people are coming to me for my vision and not for theirs. You know? So that's where more so I'm, I'm making lots more judgment decisions than I, I would have, uh, than I used to do. But that's because of you know, just people like the records that I've worked on. They, they're more inclined to listen to the things that I say, especially that I'm a little bit older now. I'm now that I'm 30 and not like the youngest 18-year-old dude recording the 25-year-olds or anything. People are more inclined to listen to the things I say. So I've, I've been getting much, much more involved in that aspect of making records as opposed to just focusing on tones. You know what I mean? Nice. So then in that case, like, what do you see that you bring to the process of a record most often? Recently, I mean, one of the big things that we've been doing is because we have two studios, we got uh, two control rooms here. I've been really trying to, the the way that I keep explaining it to people is I've recorded bands for 15 years of my life. I'm tired of recording bands. Mm -hmm. I want to instead make records and write really good songs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, it's just, there's no difference in, in the process. It's just the mindset and the approach of it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, the band isn't coming in here and just being like, all right, man, set up your drum set. Let's fucking throw some mics on there. I'm going to tweak this EQ. Sounds great. Oh, that's awesome. Right? Like, that's, I really like your, uh, your, your, voice, voice, your right? amateur uh, engineer voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's fucking awesome, right? It sounds great. Listen to this compressor. That's fucking sick. Like, I'm so tired of that. Like, that's, I, I, can, make, I can make great sounding tones, like, the back of my hand at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. What really matters to me, and the thing that I started getting most obsessed with, is the song behind that, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I'd make these great sounding records, and then I'd, I'd, I'd show my friends and be like, what do you think of this, man? And they're like, man... That singer sucks, dude. This band's songs are just terrible. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm missing the fucking point. You know, I'm yeah. completely missing the point of why I'm doing this. So that's that's been what I've been really trying to focus on and really trying to... Those are the bigger conversations that I try to have with bands now. Sometimes it gets really weird because it's like, you know, I'll be like, hey, man, tell me why you guys are here and what are your goals and, and, and what, are we, what are we trying to accomplish and, you know, what songs, like, are you guys influenced by... And, and it's like, they, some dudes will look at me like I'm on acid and, mm-hmm. and talking like a weirdo, you know, like, who's this hippie? Like, I'm just here to like play drums with my friends, you know, it's like, <laughs> all right, man, 
uh, you should not be here making a record with me. You know what I mean? Like, you should be recording a record with Joe, you know, Joe Blow in his garage who wants to do it for free for you. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm trying to make great songs. I'm trying to capture great performances. And I want to push artists to be the artists that they want to be, you know? Like, I'm not expecting them to walk in perfect anymore because that's just not the world. It's, and if it was, then I would be Steve Albini putting a mic up or Al Schmidt and be like, mm-hmm. here's a mic on, a, on this huge symphony. It sounds perfect. No compression, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. Because those are the best fucking players in the world, bro. Like, yeah. I'm dealing with kids who are writing songs in a bedroom, have never once facilitated a band practice with real instruments. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, there's two good creative people in the room who are their song is trying to be facilitated in a real record. So that's that's more so the process recently is really getting involved in, in the songs and doing like and, and down to every aspect of it. Changing drum beats, changing up the structures, changing keys of songs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, changing tempos, to having, you know, get absolutely everything we're doing at this point, you know. It's not just, okay man, we have it up to you and you're just gonna come in here and we're gonna capture you. I think you hit on something I'd love to um get into a little bit too is like Please. I think what that's one of the biggest differences and like, you know, musicians are listening to this, is that like if you are just the dude who's like, yo, I'm just here to jam out with my friends and smoke some weed and yeah, yeah. you know, play video games you are not going to be the guy. Like I can say this of like 20 years of working with bands that end up being successful. The bands who don't get that conversation that you're having with you are the bands that go nowhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest, the biggest thing is like, uh, and I, I think one of the best things that's ever happened to me, this story so far doing so well. Mm-hmm. And, um, because you know, when, when I first started working with them, they were kids in high school, you know, and it was lots of people like, I, you know, I have a reputation for being uh, really demanding and really, really hard on individuals because I want them to be awesome. You know, I want them to be the best that they could be. And I'm, I'm, I'm coaching them and helping push them there like a drill sergeant, as opposed to being the dude patting you on the back and be like, everything you do is perfect, man. Like, no, it's not sometimes. Mm -hmm. And here's where it's not perfect. And those guys were the type of dudes where when they come in, we don't have those conversations because Mm -hmm. they're so, they're so dedicated and they're so talented that all we're doing is being best friends, making songs that we really care about. And, uh, at the end of the day, that is what matters. You know what I mean? Like, why do people like the story so far? Because that band is a band of dudes who all are genuinely passionate about the music they play, and they want to do it as as solid as possible. They want to be great musicians, they want to be great songwriters, and they want to have a great time being best friends, you know? Mm-hmm. And all these other people are like, yo, man, we got our promo shot, we got our fucking manager, <laughs> we fucking got this. Dude, look at our Facebook, give us a like on that. It's like, yo, man, no. how's your songs? Yeah. Oh, like... We don't, you know, that's, they miss that entire aspect of it. And so that's, that's like, like you said, you know, it's like, I don't make records because it's fun. You know, I make records because I want it to be rewarding and I want to achieve, I want to make the best fucking record every day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, am I crazy for thinking that? Like maybe, you know, but I, I, I expect the people in the room with me to want to be making the best shit possible. You know, I am totally with you. And I think that that's the thing is, is like, you know, you're talking about like what makes story so far a great band. It's like consideration and development and really being into that. That is really, really cool. That's what makes a great band. And like so many people find that to be like boring. And that's the same person who's at seven 11 when they're 35 years old, thinking about their dreams. Yeah, exactly. Talking about how they knew those guys at one point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's the big thing though. It's like, I'm, I'm very thankful that, that 
uh, story so far has gone and where they are in an honest way. It wasn't like, oh, well, like, they made this tweet one time and then, like, uh, Justin Bieber retweeted it. <laughs> so, like, millions of people love that band now and that's why they're huge. Like, it's not, there's no, like, secret. The secret is being true to yourself and being passionate about what you do. Like, that's mm-hmm. it. Like That's the secret and that's the hard thing. So, a lot of people are like, but there's got to be another way. Absolutely. So with that theme, uh, what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? What they call prepared is absolutely not prepared in any way, shape, or form. You know what I mean? Like, I think uh, another big thing, too, is like a big learning experience that I've had like the last two years is, is I, lots of times I, I, would, I would be you know, writing these guys, and I would look around, and all of a sudden I realize I'm the only guy in the room who cares. Mm. Like, I'm the only guy in the room who cares, and they just think I'm being this asshole because they don't even really care about the end result except for me. So I kind of... I really started um, having the bigger conversations about making sure that these people were coming to me for the right reasons, as opposed to like, hey man, like you're looking to just have a fun time. Okay, well then I'll be a monkey today and I'll just press record and we'll get out of here, you know? Mm-hmm. And when, when we do that, then they're like, I'm not happy with the end results. Like, yeah, well you weren't happy when I was telling you to play things differently. You told me that I was being mean to you and then now you're not happy. So <laughs> I really started I really started getting in tune with myself and being like, no, I'm going to trust my gut instinct. I'm going to have these bigger conversations with these guys and I'm, I'm going to really try to make what we do beneficial, you know? And so I think like the biggest thing that I've been, I've been talking to fans about is like, Hey, we got three aspects that we could focus on here. The quality of the, re- er, like the quality of the experience making this record, the quality of the actual record or your budget. Mm-hmm. What two things are the most important aspects for us to keep in mind? Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes people will say, it's the budget and it is the quality of the record. And it's like, all right, man, you know that this isn't going to be fun if you don't have your shit together, right? I'm going to be really demanding and I'm going to be really fucking hard on you and be like, let's go. Let's do this. We fucking are three miles away from the finish line and we have to finish this in fucking 20 minutes. We need to run our asses off, guys. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. And sometimes that's not, that's not the right attitude. And they... Even though they're saying that they want, you know, they want this to be the best possible and that they want it to be within the budget, I got to read the room a little bit better sometimes, you know. And so that's what I've been mm-hmm. doing is is really, really, you know, looking at the bigger picture with dudes. And and a lot of these records that I've been making recently, it starts with like, oh, hey, we only have fucking six days, six days for three songs. That's it, you know. It's like, all right, six days later, they walk out with two songs and they're fucking mm-hmm. coming back for six more days to do two more songs. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. we're like all of a sudden we start building the bigger picture and these guys start to get it and realize the importance of why we're here and what we're doing. You know, like we're trying to make good stuff. We're not just trying to bullshit you through this, you know? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's been like a big, uh, a big positive aspect for us. And, and also like uh, I tried to touch on it earlier, having uh, the two studios here, mm-hmm. we've been doing simultaneous tracking, mm-hmm. which is just, increase the morale i'm doing vocals in one room as they're doing guitars in another we're both working on the same song the the dudes who are hanging around they can walk back and forth they could be contributing creatively to whatever idea they are it's not just four dudes sitting on my couch on their phones waiting for their turn to record you know yeah like we do that at our studio and it really is astounding how much that brings up the vibe and it brings up the productivity because you also feel like it's not that thing when like the rhythm guitar has bad intonation and you've been punching the chorus for two hours and you won't feel like anything is getting done it's like no tons of shit's getting done even if one room slows down absolutely man totally and then and also and really in those things 
it starts to kind of highlight and and speak to the musicians about who's dropping the ball. You know what mm, I mean? Yeah, and they, great point. They they don't start to they don't start to look at me like, hey man, how are we doing on time? Are we okay? It's like, hey man, you should be asking yourself that question because we were the ones sitting here for two hours on that chorus and you kept saying, I'm sorry, let me try it again. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so like it starts becoming really obvious to them and that that helps. Uh, that helps the morale too of being like, Hey, look how much they're doing next door and how slow we're over here. Like, it's not my fault. It's your fault. And I don't have to say that to them. You know, I I like that a lot. What's a smart thing you see bands do while they're in the studio. Um, a big, a a really smart thing as recently is, uh, Bands who do all their pre-programmed program out drums before they get here. It's just been so beneficial to be like, let me load on your program drums and like, let me make sure that your guide track is right before you go in there and play drums to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a huge beneficial thing. And so many, uh, like, I cannot believe how like 90% of the bands that I've worked with recently have all that on their computers. They're doing their yeah. pre-pros themselves. And they're like, yeah, yeah, here you want my mini trucks? Here you go. It's in your Dropbox right now. It's like, hell yeah, I want to import this. And we're just like going to work on your song as opposed to, let me uh, throw a mic on your kick drum. Can you hit that kick, please? You know? <laughs> yeah, dude, I'll tell you, like, we started really getting into that in 2015. And, like, man, like, I, I do feel like that's, like, one of the really good secrets of, like, what you can be doing now is it's, like, if you got those demos ready, you got what each person's playing and those MIDI drums, it's, like, we can write and Absolutely. get your song somewhere better so much faster. Totally, totally. And, and so that's, like, I, you know, the biggest, like, mistake is that, you know, they don't do enough pre-production work. And the biggest mistake is the fact that I'm assuming that they're having all that work done before they get to my studio, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where no matter what now, I'm going through every single song, I'm building a template around it, we're importing MIDI drums and we're making sure that what we're about to do is storyboarded correctly, you know? Mm -hmm. And if that that takes more time than what you were expecting to make, um, are we having a conversation about making a great record or are we having a conversation about getting it done? You know what I mean? Like, okay, we're having a conversation about making a great record, then this is why we're doing it and I'm going to continue doing this for you. You know, I, I, you hired me to be your best friend and make you the best thing possible. So that's why we're doing this, you know? I like that. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? I, it happens a lot, man. I mean, I 2014 was a really bad year for me. 2015 uh, was a lot better. Uh, and so far, you know, 2016 is about to be the bomb. But I mean, 2014 was really hard on me because I don't think any of us could have really like expected how demanding our schedules were going to be with the overflow of just fans wanting to work with us because of like mm-hmm. the waiting room and stuff like that. And so, and 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 it, I think one of the biggest issues was that we had such a high, we made such great quality records with like State Champs and with with Story So Far and with you know Basement and and these records people were like these sound great. I want my record to sound like that. It's like okay. I need you to end here for eight weeks. Well, we can only afford two. Okay, well, then we'll do two. And they're not happy, and I'm not happy, because mm. I made the mistake of assuming that that band, who is far less experienced, far less talented than these individuals, are going to replicate an album of that quality within that type of time. You know, like, shame on me, ultimately, for assuming that they would be pre- uh, prepared enough. And that that was my mistake, and that, that led to hostile situations where I was expecting people to have things together, they weren't, and I was I was bringing the hammer down hard, and they were not responding well to that, you know. Mm. And and that and that ultimately made me really, you know, it, it made me kind of step back and be like, okay, maybe I'm being too hard on people. But ultimately, it was like, no, it wasn't that I was being too hard on people. I just wasn't communicating it correctly, and it was ultimately my fault for assuming that they would have these things together. And so 
that's where it just I, I've now been like, all right, well, if we're going to need more days, I don't have a problem telling you that. Mm-hmm. And if you if you have a problem with that, then you can go someplace else and you can wrap it up and make yourself happy. I'm happy to be involved and I'm still your best friend. You know, like whatever you need to do, whatever your budget is, whatever your ex- expectations are, if you want me to be involved in your record, I'm not going to let you down. You know what I mean? I'm going to make it the best possible. And if it if it's going to take a longer amount of time and, it, and it's going to be a, a not fun process, to achieve that result, I'm not afraid to be that anymore, you know? Nice. And I think that that is really like one of those things. Cause like at the end of the day, our job is to get a result. Absolutely. And like, I think that's the, is the like other part of problem is it's like when you work with a great band, it's like, yes, all these bands that are coming to you are like, are expecting you to do that. And to extent, yes, we do do some of it. You know, most of that is laid bare before you ever get to the studio, how good that's going to be. Even the greatest producer on earth with the most time can only make you so much better and figuring out how to get that result consistently, I think is a huge deal. Absolutely. That entire process uh, of those years. I mean, I, I only get, and I always, I try to tell this to bands all the time too, is like, we only get to the right result by making every mistake possible. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm proud to say I've made every mistake possible. I've, I've blown, I've burned so many bridges. I've ruined so many cool opportunities. Like I've been such a dick to so many people that I shouldn't have been like, I've, I've fucked up every fucking time. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And that's, that's why I am where I am today. And, and it's, it's about like, being uh not afraid to push yourself to be the best person possible and that's and when i see that with certain bands that i work with we're on that vibe it's just like it feels so rewarding at the end of the experience you know it may not be fun but it's so rewarding when we end up uh hitting the right creative vision that we were all working for you know mm-hmm. that, that's great i like i like that a lot um yes. so we have some rapid fire questions about like what some of the modern production tools are and how they play a role in what you yeah. do yeah uh, Amp simulators, roll in your production. Big time. I love the Kemper. I love it. One of the big things that's that I do, uh, which makes some guitar players feel weird sometimes, but ultimately they they figure it out within a few hours of, of why it's the most convenient thing ever. But I track everything DI. We're monitoring through either a real amp or the Kemper, and at the end of the take, we'll press reamp and actually record that through that amplifier. So that way, you know, if we're, I, I like using the Kemper because it's basically like. I have every tone that I've ever done for any record in there. I, I, anytime I, I set up a microphone on a guitar app, I make a profile of it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, my assistant Miguel, I gave him the camper. I'm just like, go through this, figure out your best, your favorite ones, choose 10 of them, you know? So he's got his 10 favorite, I have my 10 favorite. If he's going to record guitar next door, he can use that amplifier. We both know that, like, we're going to get a working sound that's going to work inside of the mix. And if we need to reamp it, we know what amp we used, what microphone we used, and how to recall that exact same tone. So... That's probably one of the best like tools for us being able to um, for us to be able to essentially storyboard our vision and achieve it correctly. You know, with the the tone and the sound of the guitar. I, I like that storyboard term for that. That's good. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I, I love movies, so I'm. Uh, I, especially documentaries. I'm a huge documentary buff. I, I, I feel like on Twitter, you and I are always watching the yeah, same exactly. things. Yeah, uh, exactly. Absolutely, man. I, I just love documentaries. Yeah, that's. I I, I really like looking at things as, as movies, you know, and as like, you know, we wouldn't go into filming these shots if we didn't actually, I mean, Stanley Kubrick's probably like one of the best examples of that. Like nothing is in the frame that is, wasn't thought about or discussed Mm -hmm. for 20 minutes. You know, everything means something, you know? So that's, that's like how I, I like to really approach this, you know? I, I think that, that this is another like one of those things like for the like aspiring producers in the audience. It's like 
every great producer I've known who does like pretty visionary and unique work, they're also paying way more attention to director documentaries and interviews than they are most producer documentaries. Absolutely. Like, you know, you'll still watch a producer or read an interview, but like, you know, I, I, it's like funny, like Kubrick and like Jean-Luc Godard, those are like who I've learned probably the most about process for of anybody. Absolutely. Um, so have you ever seen Chef's Table? I have seen Chef's Table, the Netflix documentary, yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a so big, that's... I'm a huge food nerd. My, uh, okay, so, keep going, I'm sorry. Yeah, my, 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 my side business is I go to every restaurant I know in New York, and I say, I give them a card, and I say, if you ever have a broken sound system, call me up, I'll fix it, and you just pay me with a free meal. That is awesome. That yeah, is it's, it's, a ni- it's a nice side business to get into expensive restaurants you don't want to spend money on. Another side business that we'll have to talk about off, off of here sometime Creating a, a studio acoustics for restaurants. That's oh, I want yeah. to do a DIY business for that oh, too. Oh, dude, I know it's so bad sometimes. Right? Yeah, and that's like, and that's where ultimately the challenge is, is selling them the need. Like, you yeah. need this environment to be uh, acoustically tuned so your customers aren't distracted and their intimate conversations are more intimate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyways, so there's a so, restaurant uh, I love that I don't like going to because the system is so honky that like it just drives me crazy. I can't pay attention to people. Yeah, that's foods. awesome. So go with go with this chef tables thing. So I I I actually like hate food. I'm like one of the pickiest eaters ever. Mm. Um, so uh, it's really funny that I, I find chefs so inspirational. But I recently I've been so inspired by the chef's table documentary, and also I assume you've seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yeah, 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 one of the best. Yeah, so. I mean, when I saw that, I was just like, "Yes, I'm Jiro!" Like this is the <laughs> this is the first time I I've I'm seeing someone else who gets the world like I do, mm-hmm. and I think that um, that type of dedication mm-hmm. to um, the art is is what I really those that's those people I find the most inspirational. I think Eric Valentine is such a good example of that because mm-hmm. he's he's essentially the Dalai Lama of recording. That guy goes mm-hmm. through every aspect of the scientific method through audio and, and the way that anything that he experiences, I trust him because he is mm-hmm. so, he is so natural and so true. And his, uh, his vision is, is responds with my vision as well. You know, so nice. like a guy like Jiro is the same way. And all those, all those guys on the chef's table, I just find being a chef and like creating your own dishes and, uh, creating your own restaurant. You have to have your own theme. You have to have your own style. You have to be extremely consistent. Like mm-hmm. I, I relate to all of that, you know, mm-hmm. I find it really inspirational. Yeah, and I, I think that that's like one of the things you see too, like for the musicians listening, is that like one of the things, so like the new book I'm writing is all on creativity and what you see in all the people who do humongous um, advances in a creative field is that they're looking in other disciplines for inspiration. And yeah. you talking about that is just another confirmation. Yeah, absolutely, man. So back to this, sample drums. They obviously have a role since you did a whole creative live class on it. Yes, um, Tell us about what role they play in your productions. So, I mean, uh, there's a little bit of history with my whole drum sampling, too. Um, drum sampling is something that, like, I always viewed as cheating. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh. Like, I, I remember uh, I, I worked on a record with this band called Strata, and uh, the guy who mixed it was Rich Costi's assistant. Mm-hmm. And oh, wow. Awesome, awesome engineer, really cool guy. So, you know, he did a lot of really interesting stuff that I, I, I looked at as he was, you know, working on the album. And uh, I had asked him, I'm just like, yo, tell, tell me about the Mars Volta album. And he's like, uh, like you know, how those drums are just amazing. It's like, oh yeah, man, the drum sampling on that was like real intense. And I was like, what? Like, mm-hmm. wait, 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 did you say drum samples? He's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's like so many hits. Like, it was like real hard to like get those to sound natural. I'm like, 
there's drum samples on that. Like, no, like you blew this magic trick. Like, I thought it was all real and amazing. Like, it's like, no, of course there's a little bit of kick and snare sample. You know what I mean? Like, and at the time I didn't understand that. And, and so like, also, you know, you hear about guys like Chris Odalji and stuff. It's mm. like, no matter uh, what your kick drum sounds like and how much money you spend on getting that kick drum tone, he's going to replace it and he's going to put his kick sound on there. And mm -hmm. the reason is because that's his sound and you're going to him for his sound, you know? And so I started, I started sampling more when I started getting to the understanding that people are coming to me for me and mm -hmm. not for me to represent them. You know what I mean? Like gotcha. they want me to represent them with my vision and my sound, you know? So that's where I started getting more comfortable using them and, and augmenting them with my own sounds. You know what I mean? And so, um, I really, I love drum sampling. I think it's an awesome role. I, it's required on everything I do. I, my mm -hmm. sister, Miguel prints all the samples and, and goes, goes through everything and make sure their face aligned and and that's that's also because you know being in london uh making the basement records seeing alan Mulder, uh you know his assistant you know everything samples on everything you know chris mm -hmm. just samples on everything rich costi samples on everything like yeah. and it's not there were and and i i don't use samples any way shape or form to replace anything it's not about replacing. Yeah, we're not we're, like i think that that's one of the distinctions we need to make exactly like, is you're not also just going to superior drummer and midding everything you're recording totally. real drums absolutely. and augmenting them with samples absolutely and and it's and the reason i'm doing it is i'm i'm trying to uh, eliminate bleed uh, I'm attempting to I, I even I don't like gates gates don't work well with me mm -hmm. I, I hear them opening and closing and I don't, when I listen to a drum set I don't hear gates opening and closing when I stand in front of it so I don't use gates it doesn't sound natural to me you know so like I the way that I will that I would you know control bleed is being like well how about I, I blend a little bit of a sample of this snare with itself and it's like oh this sounds way natural this is mm -hmm. totally cool this is awesome so like that experience of trying it helped me really uh, learn my own technique and my own way of, of using samples. So I definitely, I definitely use them, but it's only to give the drums the voice that they want to have in the mix, not to change their sound. Do you master your own records? Uh, I've been mastering my own records. And, and it's funny because I used to have so much respect for mastering. I used to be mm -hmm. like, man, it's this fucking art. It's this like science, like, man, like I, like I don't even invest in the gear for mastering. Like I just like, that's a whole different world. I don't even want to like get into that world. Then I, you know, I started sending the ma my masters out for like a new story record to a bunch of different people. And, uh, every single time story would just choose my master over mm -hmm. the other people's. And it's like, what do you mean? Like, this is like, we paid this person like a thousand dollars. Like you're going to use mine instead of that person. Like, it's like, uh, so I started getting to a point of using, of, of really getting into mastering, like, and invest, like investigating, uh, the whole mastering process. And I've developed my own, and I definitely am so much more comfortable mastering my own material now than I ever was before. And uh, I, I would probably prefer to do it 75% of the time now, whereas before I would I would avoid it and I would just not do anything. Nice, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's funny, like, I had a conversation, I think it was on EL's podcast, like, it was that, like, you know, you hit a point where you have so much control of your sound, and you're getting the results you want that when the mastering engineer does something different with it, it's like, oh, well, that's not what I wanted. Like, yeah, I already nailed it. I just want yeah. to see if you could like tweak something a little. Yeah, exactly. I wanted you to fix my complaint. I didn't want you to do your sound onto it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, or, or, and it just, uh, it just wouldn't. There would be too much. Uh, everyone was doing too much. Mm -hmm. No one would do uh, too little. You know, and so that's where I mean, when when we ended up getting the master record master, it was like. 
I, I use uh, the homie Chris Crumit because mm-hmm. he's got better converters than I do. And I, he was going to do exactly the same thing I was going to do, which was what I was doing at the time, just running it through my converters a little hot and uh, using some of uh, my UTA EQ, which he had, so he used that and he, and he nice. went with his converter. So like his sounded just a little bit better than mine. So I chose to go with that one, you know? Nice. Um, so we kind of hit this before, but um, how long do you like to take to work on a song usually? in usual case scenario it's interesting because i actually it's it's always a group of material together you know what i mean mm-hmm. so it's never like never like song by song um but i mean it's like uh, let's i'll i'll take this uh this guy this dude anton who's actually a phenomenal uh, musician i've worked with recently he uh it's like a development project for epitaph mm-hmm. and so he has eight songs he came up here uh with a, a drummer I played bass on it. He played guitar. We like, you know, rewrote a bunch of the things, changed a bunch of stuff, did like, went through the entire process of making sure everything's great, you know, no stone unturned. And that, that was probably, I want to say that was 15 days total for about eight songs. So it's usually about like two days a song is kind of the, the theory, you know? So like, when, like a record like story, those guys are writing songs in the studio for a couple weeks at a time. And then we start recording, you know? So, but usually like, you know, it's, for a record like the story is like eight weeks, but a normal record is like four to four to six weeks for ten songs. Mm-hmm. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Man, there's so many, there's so many cool dudes that I've been able to talk with. Um, I, I would say probably one of the the newer conversations that I had with Mike Green was a really inspirational time, and that's that's when I asked him just about like how he goes with pitching song or ideas to bands and and. And working on that and and his it was a really inspirational conversation because he just basically like yeah everything i do is pro bono it's like holy cow how do you have a career you know I mean? like mm-hmm. you, you mean all your your work is spec you know like so uh it was very very uh cool to talk to him about the fact that the way that he kind of pitched it is like when you're going to work with a band about uh you know working on their songs you're kind of what the way he described it is you're tearing at the iceberg with an ice pick as opposed to just starting with an ice cube, you know what I mean? Mm. So uh, he like like at, he likes you know writing entire things and pitching it that way, or just you know starting from scratch. And that's been a lot more fun and inspirational to try to work with artists like that and be like, hey man, let's just kind of work on some songs and see where we go. And uh, that's yielded some pretty awesome results recently. You know what I mean? It's just like focusing on the actual songwriting aspect of, as opposed to just oh, yeah man, I'm going to record a band. You know? Nice. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Uh, I would say being doing the basement record in uh, London was like probably one of the coolest inspirational uh, times because uh, the studio was owned by uh, it's owned by Alan Mulder and Flo. Oh, nice! Yeah, and the, uh, two of the best ever. Yeah, and like those. So I mean, like for those unaware, it's like uh, you know Alan Mulder or Flood did the U two record, and uh, together uh, they did the Killers records. Alan was Flood's assistant for many years. Uh, became his own producer when Flood couldn't do the second Nine Inch Nails record. Mm-hmm. So Alan did it and has never stopped working with uh, Nine Inch Nails since and has been a phenomenal producer and, you know, mixed Foo Fighters stuff. And like, you know, it was, it was so inspirational to be able to see, to be able to see his SSL in a mix and like go walk, go walk down and like with, uh, you know, the assistant who was my assistant who was helping me upstairs, he was Flood's assistant, you know, it's like, hey, let's go down and talk to Caesar, who's Alan's assistant. Like just look at the console, look at the stuff and just like, taking it all in and uh it that entire experience was really inspirational because i look up to like that that crew so much you know Mm -hmm. they made like some of my best like some of my favorite records and some of the most inspirational sounding stuff and it was so surreal to be in a in that you know environment 
where I'm making a record upstairs and Flood's assistant is like, yo, man, I'm learning so much from you, man. Like, this has been so fun. It's like, really, man? Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm asking you questions over here, like thinking that you're the genius, you know what I mean? Like, and it was like, uh, it, it was really cool to be like, okay, like, I guess I am talented. Like, I guess like, I guess I can make good records. You know what I mean? Like it was a very, uh, it was a very reassuring time. And, um, having that whole staff there, uh, and like, you know, so many positive assistants that, that changed my entire outlook on how to run my studio. And when I came back, it's like, we're getting more assistants. We're going to start doing dual records. We're going to start doing this type of thing. Like the, it was that really everything clicked when I was at in, in London. It all made sense what I was doing and where to take it to the next level, if that makes sense. Nice. And you, you know what's funny is, so you talk about your moment with the Mars Volta thing with discovery you want to use samples. Yeah. I was totally anti it. And then I'm listening to Swerve Drive on Mezcal Head with Steve Evans. He's like, man, that fucking sample is so loud. It's annoying. I'm like, oh, I love that sample. Let's, that's yeah. like my favorite stair set. I have to start using samples. That's funny. That's so funny. Um, one of one of my favorite things uh, that Alan's assistant said to me, uh, I was like, dude, uh, Alan's like, you know, Dave Grohl's drums on uh, Nine Inch Nails with Teeth, like that album is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but did he play on it though? And I was like, wait, mm-hmm. what? And he's like, I just mean like, it's super sampled. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, it's so like, it's at Sound City. It sounds like drums in a huge room, but mm-hmm. it's just like, they, the reason they sound so good is because they're using some samples and that's why they smash so hard, you know? It is a thing. And I think that that's one of the things is every once in a while we need those reality checks of like what we can project onto records that we want them to be and then what they actually are. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And so like, yeah, like, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of, uh, that, that experience like in London, like seeing like Alan's board and stuff. It's like, it's all kind of, uh, blowing away the hype. And, and fairy dust, you know what I mean? That you're just like, man, like, what is it about him? Like, what is he doing that makes it so special? It's like, nah, man, it's just him, man. And it's mm-hmm. all just like, it's all just natural, bro. You know what I mean? Like, it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's no secrets. There's nothing. It's just a, a person being dedicated and being awesome. And that's, that's where you're like, well, I just want to be dedicated and be awesome then. You know what I mean? Like, nice. that's a, a very, uh, that's, that's why it was so reassuring, you know? I, I like that a lot. Um, so conversely, tell me about one of the worst moments you've had and what you learned from it. One of the worst ones was like, uh, without any names, I mean, I had a band um, come out from the UK to make a record with me. And it was it was very clear that like things, I thought that they were together. I liked the material, but there was disagreements within the band. And I was, I was the one guy who was like, I'm going to finish this record on time. I'm going to make sure that this band, when they leave, they leave with a mix. Everything's perfect. And I was the guy that was like barking up a storm, like, why aren't we getting on, get in the room and let's do vocals. Let's get on, let's do this. And uh, I remember I was just shouting at the vocalist. I was in the live room, I was just yelling at him and we were just yelling at each other so hard because he, he, for two days, he was like, no, I'm not like ready to do vocals. I'm like, I'm sitting here waiting. Why are you out here from the UK? What are we doing right now? Like, mm. and I remember just like shouting at him, just like, there's a mic right here. Why don't you sing into this microphone and <laughs> let's do this? Like why? I was like, look at my studio. Like, do I look unprepared for this moment? Like, if you do not want to do this, go home. And he did his record and it turned out phenomenal and it's never going to come out and the band is unhappy with it. And that was that. So it was like, that was that experience where it was like, okay, clearly I was the only guy who was like ready to do this. And I mm. should have just been like, Hey man, if you don't like your ideas, I'm okay with not doing anything today. Mm. I'm fine with that. Whatever makes you happy. Like ultimately I didn't, 
if they needed more time, I needed to read that moment, right? And I didn't read that moment, right? In any way, shape, or form. Instead, I was like, you're going to do what I tell you to because I want to finish this right now. You know what I mean? I want to make this record great right now. And they weren't ready to do it. And that was that was my my total mis... I misread everything wrong, you know? And therefore, I completely imploded that process, you know? So mm. I definitely... I could definitely be so passionate that my passion can definitely derail things sometimes, you know what I mean? Mm. I, I like that a lot. That's a really good one. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, and ultimately at the end of the day, it's like without like pointing fingers, you know, it's like, Hey man, you shouldn't have fucking flown out from the UK if you didn't have your shit together. You know what I mean? You shouldn't have fucking flown out. This is bullshit. And, but like, I, I, I also, that, that was my attitude the entire time. You know what I mean? But like, I get it. You know what I mean? I get it. People don't have some shit together. Sometimes labels are booking it. They're saying, you're going to do this and this. It all doesn't go to plan. So we have to do the best we can with the time we have, you know what I mean? And if that means we need more time, then we'll fucking figure it out, you know? A hundred percent. I think that that's actually a really great point that's not discussed is that, like, you know, you, you got to be malleable. And it's both musicians and the producers is that, like, so every, every set of people is a different set of complications. And you can't always just be like, this is my new philosophy and I'm sticking to it or else Absolutely. you're going to rake face pretty hard. No, totally, man. So it's I think that's that's the one thing that, like, I, I really reinforce to people and, the, and, and I don't make these mistakes uh, because I, I have g- good conversations with dudes before we even get together. Mm. And it's really, and it, it becomes very uh, apparent to them how dedicated I am, you know? And like, and I, I, I used to have to have these moments where I would just be like, why are we here? You know, like, look at my studio. Like, look how much, like I, every dollar I make, I put into the studio to mm. have this moment to make this moment count right now. Like, why aren't we doing what we need to be doing the best we possibly can right now? Like what's going on, you know? So it's like, it gets very frustrating sometimes, but ultimately the bands that I've been working with recently, their passion and dedication matches mine. And we don't have those issues anymore. You know, that's great. Tell me about a record you did that changed your life. I would say working as like an assistant with uh, this band Strata was probably, probably like one of the cool, like life changing ones because uh, I got to watch, I got to see every aspect of, of watching that band be a band that was supposed to go big and nothing, nothing happened. You know what I mean? Like just fucking imploded. And so it was kind of a, it was a very interesting lesson of seeing uh, a band. They were, they were starting to wind up. So mm. it was like, it was Creed and Evanescence days. And you know, they, oh, wow. they had money to spend on this. I mean, for example, the band went to London, came back because they didn't like the producer, didn't like the songs weren't going well. So they uh, rented time at a studio in San Francisco, and I was doing, like, they basically had two, uh, three rooms there. I was in one room helping them out, like, doing, like, overdubs for, like, pianos and stuff. They were doing drums in another room, and uh, the A&R guy from the label, this guy, Greg Wattenberg, mm. he came out and basically, like, was finishing up the album and producing it. And he wrote Mandy Moore's Candy. And oh, also, also wrote that uh, Spider-Man song with Chad Kroger and the Saliva guy. And so <laughs> that guy was like, to watch that guy, uh, to just see him in a room, like just you know, do, do the jeans and a, and, a, and a black t-shirt and just he, the amount of get it, like I can't even describe the word get it, but that mm. dude just got it. You know, like everything he said made sense. He was perfect. He was brilliant. You know, lots of times I would watch this band, just kind of disagree with him. And like, I would just watch moments where it's like, dude, this guy, Greg, is, like, spinning some fire right now, and you guys are just not vibing on it at all. Like, what's mm-hmm. going on with you? You know what I mean? Like, so it was very cool to kind of watch uh, a really professional process happen and watch the mistakes be made in front of me and, like, be a silence fly on the wall for that. You know what I mean? So that was that was probably the best experience because after that, you know, I really got into uh, 
I really got into you know making records because I, I was really inspired through that. Also, another one was um, I got to watch Chris Walla make a record with uh, my friend's band, So Many Dynamos. Oh, nice! And, uh, that was a tiny telephone in San Francisco. Yeah, and, I've heard that record before. That was a really cool yeah, record. Phenomenal record. I, I hung out for one day, and uh, it was like. That band is one of the coolest bands in the world. They yeah. walked in the studio with no songs and wrote everything by pulling oblique strategies every day. That's the <laughs> so coolest funny. thing in the world. So, I, I, every I, I, day, so, so, so I'm looking at my oblique strategies card yeah. right now. Um, tell people what that is. So oblique strategies is from uh, Brian Eno, who's uh, also, by the way, Brian Eno was at the studio oh, in man. London for one day when I was there. I didn't see him, but I felt his presence. He was there. <laughs> so basically, uh, Brian Eno, you know, he worked on YouTube, uh, Talking Heads, David Bowie. And the oblique strategies are a deck of cards that have uh, complete open-ended um, statements on there that essentially uh, force you to respond instinctually, if that makes sense, right? Anyways, that band, you know, Sony Animals went there and just would pull a card and it would say, try it reverse. And they're like, all right, let's try this riff uh, backwards instead. Okay, that's sicker. Let's, that's going to be our verse now. Like, they, they wrote entire songs like that every day. And Chris, they would just work on one song a day. Chris would, like, change all the biking technique and just, he would just nerd the fuck out. And it was really cool to basically, like, oh, man, you're using a stressor on snare? That's awesome, man. I love a distressor on snare. Man, you're hitting 20 dBA compression? Fuck, I barely hit, like, three. I'm going to hit 20. I'm going to try that someday. <laughs> like, so it was, like, real cool to, like, like watch. It's real cool to, like, watch these dudes use the tools that you use and, like, abuse them in a way that you're like, oh, I thought I was, like, doing too much, but maybe I'm just not being instinctual and creative enough, you know? So it was it was real cool to watch Walla do it, especially because uh, Plans had just come out at the time. So it was, oh, like, yeah, they, they were, like, they're like the coolest band, so it was like, you know, he, he's just such a nice guy, man. Like, great engineer, phenomenal engineer. Yeah, so, I mean, that record's sound-wise a masterpiece. Yeah, so, I mean, those two, like, experiences are probably, like, I mean, and, and like, with London, too, like, those are all just, like, some super inspirational times that I've had where it really, uh, it really either drives me or uh, really, like, I, you know, or confirms the things that I'm doing, you know? Nice. Tell me about a perfect record someone else has done and what makes it perfect. Oh, man. Okay, so... Third Eye Blind. Um, oh, yeah. First one, and that's, that record is just absolutely, absolutely perfect in every way, shape, or form. And it's, you know, that's, that's an hour where they had money to spend on, on a budget. You know, they, they rented Skywalker Sound mm-hmm. and, and did drums in Skywalker for some well, we, we, Yeah, I thought that they did that at the plant, too. Um, they did, uh, they did. So they did the it at the, the, it's the, the site, I the think site, That's where we did the Limp Bizkit record I did. Okay, hell yeah. yeah. So what, so you were on uh, um, $3 Billy Roll, or which one? No, were uh, uh, Unquestionable Truth, part one. Oh, nice. <laughs> it was dude, pretty questionable, the, pretty questionable. Like the, was, like the guitar player, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That, so that's it was, funny. It was a fun record. Yeah, you know my you know my little West story, I, right? I, I do, I do know, yeah. I do know that. So, that's pretty funny. Such a phenomenal story. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that that record with the fact that there was no, they, they cut no corner on that, mm-hmm. you know, for sound quality. Everything was the best quality possible. Mm-hmm. The songwriting is just phenomenal. Uh, when I listen to that record front to back, I, I feel complete as a human being, and I feel inspired to make extremely great sounding records and very open and organic sounding records, you know? But, you know, so we discussed this on the Casey Bates episode, but you know what I think is so funny is, like, we have this myth that, like, Records are made by people who get along and love each other. Oh, and then, absolutely, right? And yeah. then, like, there's that record where those two trashed each other in the press for, like, a fucking year. Yeah, man. I mean, like, uh, no one... each other. No one, like, really, like, you know, uh, I, I was surprised that, like, 
uh, Valentine did a podcast and he talked to, they asked him about like, you know, the royalties on that. And I can't believe he even talked about it. Like I had heard that there was so much drama and it sounded like it was, you know, like mm-hmm. somebody got like, he got shafted on his producer credits, you know, and he didn't get the points that he should have gotten on a record that sells millions of records mm-hmm. today. Like that's fucking insane. Like, yeah. and then, you know, you got uh, you got to uh, link me to that, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, I, I definitely will. And then you know, uh, Stephen Jenkins, you know, stealing songs on the next album from Kevin again and not giving him credits like that. That entire thing is crazy. But so yeah, that record I would I would say is totally perfect. Another, I mean, one of my biggest inspirational bands is the Strokes. Man, mm. they make perfect records every single time. Man, they are the most perfect band in the world. I love them so much. I I, I just think the best thing about the Strokes is that. Um, no one plays the same part, mm. but they all play one huge unity together. And it's so, it's the biggest Tetris uh, example of like a Tetris genius every single time you hear one of their songs. Wow, no I, I never considered that. That's a, that's a great observation. Yeah. No one steps on each other's toes. They're all supporting each other. No one overplays. No one underplays. They're all doing exactly what the song is asking them to do. They're the best example of how to serve a song. That, mm. That's the best takeaway from that band. I like that a lot. So tell me about five of your favorite records and what they did in your musical growth. Radiohead was a big inspiration for me. Kid A, uh, really big inspiration just in terms of like the, the atmosphere and the sound on those records. Uh, I, I hadn't heard anything like it at the time. It's like, it's like watching Star Wars for the first time. You know what I mean? It's just like, holy cow, this is, this is fucking phenomenal. What is happening? This voice effect and this, this crazy, what is this instrument? Like that record just sounds so cool. I'm a big Bjork fan, uh, Vesper Time is one of my favorite ones too. Um, just they're, and they're all kind of similar in that like Apex Twin, Bjork, uh, mm. Radiohead, they're all kind of like clumped together as like those three records are all yeah. kind of influenced each other and they all influenced me in the same type of way. Nice. Which Apex Twin? Richard D. James. Nice. Yeah. That's right yeah. up there for me too. That yeah, and Liquor are like two of my favorites of all yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. I mean, I think that song, uh, Finger Bib is like mm-hmm. my favorite Apex Twin song. Everyone loves that one, Flim, but uh, mm-hmm. Finger Bib's the one. Um, but then, you know, I, I got really into, uh, lots of hardcore bands. I was a huge Glashdot fan growing up, nice. huge. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I, I like Steve Abbott's records at the time. I like mm-hmm. grew up liking, you know, uh, every time I die and that, those type of heavy things. But I think, and that aspect, it was always, um, it was always Ross Robinson, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, yep. that's how I got into Steve was, uh, through the cure on Ross Robinson. Like that's oh, how nice. I learned. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I, I was really into Ross Robinson records. Like, uh, weird bands like Vex Red and stuff like that. that he oh, had yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like, it's so. funny, like, yeah, before I worked for him, that was, like, one of the records I was, like, really listening to before. Yeah, the and that was, that's a band that you thought was going to be huge, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, like nothing really happened to. Like, yeah, there was, I, don't, I don't think uh, that record even sold 50,000. No, copies. totally. That, that, was a, that was a type of band that they thought would become from first to last, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, so... I really liked a lot of Ross Robinson records growing up. Like, you know, love Limp Biscuit, loved, uh, um, at the driving, like phenomenal, phenomenal record. Uh, that's how I got into like Andy Wallace and, and Nirvana. Um, all those, all those organic, um, Andy Wallace, uh, Rick Rubin, Ross Robinson records are all kind of in another clump. You know what I mean? So it's like, you got the Apex twin, uh, uh atmospheric stuff. Then when it comes to like rock records, it's, it's those, those at the drive-in Ross Robinson things of an organic band that I like to sound, you know what I mean? So that's kind of, and that, that, that's kind of prevailing in like the work of like the story so far, for example, it's like, I, I, I try to go more real with a band like that, as opposed to John Feldman, uh, five seconds of summer, you know what I mean? It's way more organic sounding than uh, a Chris Lord algae type of record, you know? But I also, you know, as of recently, I'm just, I'm so into pop music, man, just absolutely so into it. I think, uh, um, 
like Carly Rae Jepsen's new album. Oh, fucking so fucking crack. good. It's oh, awesome. it's so... And, like, the, the Serban mixing is just unreal. The mixing on that is, like, so inspirational. Also, The, the you best know, vocal writer in the game. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Uh, the the new Five Seconds of Summer record is from Thelma is, is phenomenal, man. Uh, and and also, you know, Eric Valentine has, like, the absolute best mix on that. Like, just... Oh, that's, really? I haven't that's, listened to the record yet. So that record's real cool. Uh, apparently, the story that I was told uh, from Mike Green and Eric... So they uh, gave Eric 27 songs to mix. Uh, he wow. mixed he mixed 27 songs, and they chose like uh, 13 of them to be on the record, and that's what the record is. And Eric mastered it too, so hmm. it's all Eric Valentine mixed and mastered. Sounds phenomenal. Oh, uh, I gotta check that. I, yeah, yeah, I was just great. so turned off by the douchiness, but now I gotta you hear know, it. It's so funny, dude. Like, because I like I I'm not afraid to say it. I love that record. It's a fantastic record. And the second I see a music video or photos of those guys. I'm like, this band, I, I would hate this band if I got into this band by looking at these photos and stuff. I'd be like, I, I got into them because I love Eric Valentine. Totally. I love like John Feldman. I love production. I love great records. And if you've got some rock guitars on it, I'm going to check it out, you know? And so that's that's how I got into that band. It's not because of their One Direction or anything like that, you know? Yeah. I did the same thing for Good, good Charlotte. I'm like, all right, the Dwarves are one of my favorite bands. That Dwarves are young and good looking is like one of my favorite mixes of all time. I'm like, I got to listen to Good Charlotte if it's both those guys. And then I love, I will never be scared to say, I love those Good Charlotte records. Absolutely. Eric Valentine killed it on those yeah. records. Uh, he also killed it on the uh, uh, All American Rejects record. Oh, That's yeah, another, I love like, perfect that. record. Fantastic. Yeah. I even love the Howard Benson one, and usually Howard Benson's a little stale for me. Yeah, I feel that too. Um, I'll, I'll touch on Howard in a second, but one thing I didn't want to forget, yeah. uh, which I think I'm kind of forgetting about now, Eric, uh, Good Charlotte. Oh, Good Charlotte wrote a bunch of songs on the new uh, Five Second Summer record, so oh. you'll love that. Yeah, nice. so definitely check that out. Um, then, uh, yeah, Howard Benson. I mean, I, I really I love Tom Lord Algie. I love Chris Lord Algie. I love Tom more than Chris. Tom's work is hmm. the fuck shit. Um, <laughs> also because, like, I'm a big Peter Gabriel fan and stuff, too. That's oh, how yeah. I saw him randomly, like, is through the, um, bit, that's on Big Time. And nice. I looked that up, and I was like, Tom Lord Algie makes this interesting. Who's Tom Lord Algie? And, like, read his sound on sound. And that's how I found out about Tom Lord Algie. Oh, and then he did Blake. Oh, wow. Okay, I like that record, too. I remember oh, reading that one, too. That's really Yeah, funny. yeah. Wow. Exactly. So, like, you know, that's, you find the theme of, like, all of a sudden, the reason I like these records is because of those producers, you know? So that's that's how I get into records is through, about, like, engineers and producers. But, yeah, like, you know, I, I love the Benson stuff. I love, uh, you know, the Green Day stuff, like the Kavala stuff. Uh, the I, I would call that all, like, you know, like, the, the records that I kind of reference, it's, like, you know, all the UK uh, atmospheric, you know, bands. Then I have, like, my, what I would say, like, New York sound. New York being, like, it's organic, it's uh, really rich sounding, which is like, you know, the Strokes and, and like, at the driving record and stuff, you know, like, and then uh, you get the into the algaes, and that's just totally fake, and it's, mm -hmm. the, I call it, like, the L.A. sound, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like, which is, that's that's more of a new thing that I really like, it's like, like the Carly records and stuff, you know? I like calling it the L.A. sound, too, because, like, the Chris Lord Alge records are, like, kind of like breasted plants. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Botox <I> lips. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's literally what, what that L.A. thing is, so... And I, I like, um, I definitely try to, to have a happy medium between L.A. and New York sound. I like to do things naturally, but I'm also not afraid to play on that level if I need to and drop some samples in and, you know, and replace some things and, and do some Botox surgery if I need mm -hmm. to, you know. Nice. What's your favorite record of uh, recent times and what inspires you about it, like the last year? So, I mean, uh, I mentioned the Five Second Sound record. That's a, a phenomenal record. Oh, dude. Uh, LCD sound system. Oh, uh, yeah. that, that stuff, like that's one of the best bands ever too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think really just, if I would sum up last, this like last year, 
Five Seconds of Summer, uh, Taylor Swift, um, the uh, all the uh, LA sounding records I, I really enjoyed this year. I had a good time with those. Nice. Tell us about what you've been working on lately. Lots of very cool development projects. I would say one thing that was like, you know, I always wanted to be like, oh, I want to work with like labels and I want to like be like a go-to guy for labels and stuff. And I, I, I started realizing that I don't want to be that because I like mm. actually, I, I, I work better doing things like the story so far where I take a band from nowhere and we build a great relationship and we make great things together as opposed to like, you've got a great thing going on. Come to me and let me do my thing for you. You know, like, so, uh, I, I've been, it's been a lot more development and like, you know, helping bands do like three songs and then they'll, they'll, you know, they'll do it because a label's interested or, or things like that. So that's been a lot more fun because, uh, we're getting really involved in the songwriting aspect as opposed to just like, all right, you got 10 songs walking and let's just slap it out. You know, like it's, it's like, okay, like this label's really trying to develop something or like, you know, you guys have enough money to invest into really trying to make this count. And those, those have been so much more creative and so creatively challenging and also just really, really fun, especially just working with both my engineers on it, just tag teaming on stuff. It's just been awesome. Like I mentioned a little earlier, I did that development project for Epitaph. That was, that was awesome. This guy, Anton, his dad actually, is the guy who directed the Pirates of the Caribbean movies oh, wow. and the ring. Yeah. So, um, but he's phenomenal, uh, singer, phenomenal songwriter. Really. He's only 19. He's got fantastic songs. But then I just, uh, worked with this band from, uh, Toronto called split fist, really young guys, pop punk band, you know, band. He's just like, we want to be, you know, we want to be awesome. We want to be the best we can possibly be. It's like, all right, man, well, I want to play some bass on your record. Um, we're going to do like a lot. We're going to get in, we're going to do some major surgery, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that band walked out of the studio having like, such an amazing time and really growing as people and, and having a fire ignited in them where they're really passionate about going down the road and really passionate about writing songs, you know? So those things have been really awesome to work on it and really creatively fulfilling, you know? If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.